Welcome to the Disciple Dare, a four-week series to challenge you to discover what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. More info on the Disciple Dare can be found at ViennaSDA.org. Pastor Jennifer Deans shows you through stories from the Bible how living the dare will give you hope in troubled times and joy in life. In this message, what must I do to be saved? It was a typical Sabbath day for Paul. He was wandering around and he was outside the city this day and he knew that there was a group of women that would be meeting and you know, worshiping God. And so he is wandering over to them and he found them and he, and they started talking and they started talking about this Jesus Christ and just having an awesome dialogue. As they're talking back and forth, um, some people wander by and this young girl screams out of nowhere, these men are from God. They've come to tell you the way to be saved. And everybody kind of looks okay. And they go back to talking, these men are from God. He's come to tell you the way to be saved. And every time Paul starts to talk, this girl screams again. And so they, they try to talk over her, and they ended up finishing their service, and they went home. And then the next day, Paul is out in the middle of the city. Him and Silas are walking around, and this girl found them again, and she's following him around. And every time he opens his mouth, she screams out, These men are from God! They're trying to tell you the way to be saved! And it is just irritating Paul to no end. So this goes on for a few days, and finally he looks at her and he says, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave her. And instantly there's a a change in the young girl. And then Paul goes back to talking. And over in the corner, the owners of this young slave girl just realized their money went flying out the window. You see, they had been using her as a fortune teller, and they were making big bucks off of her. And they realized what Paul just did just stopped them from making money, and this totally infuriated them. And so they started screaming in the crowd, these men are causing a riot. Like, they screamed to the crowd that the men are causing a riot. And then a riot starts around these men. And so Paul and Silas get dragged in front, of the, in front of the judges, the magistrates of the town. And without anything being said, this guy just incited a riot. They beat Paul and Silas with wooden sticks. And they beat them over and over and over and over and over again. And then the magistrates take Paul and Silas And they throw them in jail. And not only do they throw them in jail, but they tell the jailer, you keep a close eye on these two. So the jailer takes them down to the heart of the prison, and he puts their feet in the stocks. How would you feel if not doing anything wrong, all of a sudden... There is a riot around you, and you're not even sure what's going on, and you're being dragged, and you get thrown in the front of this mob, and then they beat you within the end of your life. Uh, the Jews had a custom that if you were to beat somebody because they'd done something wrong, you could only beat them 40 times minus one. So in other words, you're only allowed to hit them 39 times. The Romans didn't have any such rules. You could beat them however much you want to. And so, with how mad this mob was, they probably beat the living daylights out of Paul 
and Silas. I would have been angry. It's just not cool. That's not fair. In fact, it's so not fair because Paul and Silas were Roman citizens and they had rights. In the Roman times, in Rome, the citizens had rights. There was two different laws governing the land. The laws for the citizens and the laws for everybody else. Everybody else basically had no rights, no protection. If you wanted to kill somebody and they weren't a citizen, go for it. It's kind of cool. But with a Roman citizen, it's a totally different story. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and they didn't even stop to check who these guys were. They just beat them and threw them in jail. What's your response to this? Mine would have been anger. And so as we, as we go down and as we follow the very narrow hallways in the prison where it's dark and it's dank and it's moist and it smells you, you find Paul and Silas in the stocks with their feet pulled apart at just an angle where it is so uncomfortable to sit. And as they're leaning and they're sitting, they're sitting on the bruises and the cuts that were made from the beating. And Paul and Silas, if you listen very carefully, you can hear them talking. And as you listen in, you realize that they're praying. And they're praying, God... We pray that you will be glorified in this situation. And as their prayers continue, they break out into song and they're singing. And it becomes this praise session that everybody in the entire prison is astounded at. And as the prison is filled with the melodious voices of Paul and Silas, out of nowhere, A gigantic earthquake shakes the entire prison. And as the prison is shaking, somehow nobody is hurt. But everybody is freed. Everybody is freed. And in the earthquake, the jailer comes running because he has got to protect and he has got to do his job. And he opens the doors of the prison. And as he opens the doors of the prison, he sees that all the doors were open. And in fact, the door he just went through wasn't locked, and he puts two and two together. This means he's going to have to... Oh, it's unbearable to think, because you know what Roman law is. If a jailer lets somebody go, they have to take their punishment. So if all of these people in the entire prison were let go, some of them were murderers and thieves and rapists and for treason, for everything else, all of their punishments got put on him. And this was way more than he could handle, way more than he could bear. And so as he's drawing his sword, he's going to take his life because he'll be more merciful to himself than the Romans. As he's pulling his sword, he hears, hey, 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 whoa, wait, stop. And with the, the knife drawn, he stops. And here comes Paul and Silas limping as they make their way up the hall of the prison. He says, don't do it. We're all here. No, no, you can't all be here. The doors have been open. It took me a while to get here. There's no way you're all here. No, no, we're all here. Why don't you count? And so with Paul and Silas, the jailer begins to walk around, and he looks in every single cell, and there stand the prisoners, chains freed, doors open, where they're supposed to be. And this man 
who is trembling now, not from fear, but awe and amazement, falls to his knees and he says, what must I do to be saved? So we're here to talk about tonight. What must I do to be saved? What is it that I have to do to get eternal life? And let's look at this story a little bit more. What is it in Paul and Silas that makes them willing to go to places and to do things that could possibly get them beaten or any number of other things? You know, this wasn't the first time that Paul had been beaten. If you'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, there's a, a really nice little resume that Paul has. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, page 945. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 22. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 22. And Paul is talking, he's like, what? Don't, I have, um, don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want, wait, wait, wait. 2 Corinthians, that would be why that did not make any sense. 2 <laughs> Corinthians, very good. Uh, verse 11, starting in 22. This will make much more sense. Okay. It says, They are Hebrews. So am I. They are Israelites. So am I. They are descendants of Abraham, and so am I. They are servants for Christ. And I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him, being Christ, far more. I have worked harder. I have been put in prison more often. I have been whipped Time without number, I faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders have given me 39 lashes. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I've been stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced dangers from my own people the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced dangers in the city, in the deserts, and on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. That sounds like a pretty cool resume, right? What is it in Paul's life, that makes him willing to risk getting beaten, getting stoned. I mean, that's like stoned to death. Um, and what, is it in, what is it in his and Silas' life that makes it worthwhile? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. That's page 957. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to read verses... 12 through 14, Philippians chapter 1. Paul explains a little bit on why he's willing to live this lifestyle. It says, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has helped spread the good news. Now, what's the everything he's talking about? He's talking about the whippings and the beatings and the floggings and the stonings and the hunger and the persecution and everything else. He says... For everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in change because of Christ and because of my imprisonment. Most of the believers have gained confidence and boldly speak God's message without fear. 
I like to imagine Paul instead of saying what I would say, because Paul was in chains and he had someone chained on either side probably at this point, because that was their laws, that's how they did it. And so that meant he couldn't have any privacy any time of the day. And Paul had gone through all of these problems and all these trials, and so what Paul is pretty much saying is like, sweet, they've got me chained to the palace guard. And you know what? That means a captive audience. That means that these guys, just like I can't get away from them, they can't get away from me. And so these guys would rotate in shifts because they weren't, they weren't a prisoner. So they would just have to be chained during their shift. And so what Paul did during the shift is he would start telling them about God. He's like, every single time there's a um, shift change, that's when my sermon starts right over. And because of that, Paul was able to influence the whole palace guard. And all of the believers were encouraged. But this thing here, there's something that happened in Paul's life that gives him an attitude of sweet. I'm in chains and I have a captive audience. Of sweet, they're trying to kill me. And it started back in Jerusalem. One day, Paul is standing with some other Pharisees as a young man gets dragged in. And this young man is asked, what? He wants to say as his final words. And there Stephen begins to tell the history of the children of Israel. And as he's talking about the history of the children of Israel, Paul is standing there watching and getting all the more mad and angry as he listens to this man utter what he thinks are blasphemies. How can he talk about this Jesus Christ as God? And the people around him are feeling the same anger, and the crowd begins to pulse. And as the crowd is pulsing, they pick up stones, and as they're picking up stones, they begin to stone Stephen. And all the while they're stoning Stephen, Stephen is just standing there, and he's staring up. And he says, I see God sitting on his throne. And with that, he falls and he dies. And while they're standing there, Paul, who is also called Saul, he is standing there and he's watching. And he is so enraged that any of these believers would want to in any way follow this Jesus Christ that he goes to the head council, he goes to the Pharisees, and he gets special permission. He gets a letter and he begins a massive attack on all Christians. And he goes and he drags people out of their homes and he throws them into prison. He is so zealous and so on fire to make sure those Christians are taken care of. Those people who claim to believe in Jesus, that's just not right. And so as he's dragging people out of their homes and throwing them in jail, he just feels more and more righteous. He is doing what God wants him to do. Well, he takes his letter and he takes his crew and they head to Damascus. And as they are on the way to Damascus, Paul is talking back and forth with the men with him, and they're putting together their game plan. This is where we're going to look first. This is where they like to hide. And this is what we're going to do to them. We're not going to let any of them stop. We're going to drag them back to Jerusalem, and we're going to show them what they get for worshiping that Jesus. And as, as he says the name Jesus, all of a sudden, this light out of nowhere shines directly on him, and this voice that he's never heard anything like before, says, Saul, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, what? 
Who, who are you? What do you mean? What, why am I persecuting you? He says, I'm Jesus Christ. And with that, the voice fades away and the light disappears. And Saul is left sitting on the ground, groping around. And his men are like, what just happened? We heard this weird thundering noise. What was that? Paul's like, it, is, it was a voice. He's like, you got to take me. And so Paul went into the city, and he was in the home, and he didn't eat, and he didn't drink, and he didn't do anything. He just plays over and over and over. The scenes of the last few weeks in his life, of the stoning of Stephen, he plays over and over his plans, the people he captured and he dragged to Jerusalem. And then he plays that voice over in his head. Why are you persecuting me? And there is a change as his heart melts. And this horrible feeling wells up inside of him. I can't believe I've been opposing God. And at that time, there's a knock on the door. And Ananias comes in and he touches Paul and he prays. And as he prays, he anoints Paul. And as he anoints Paul, scales fall from his eyes. And he says, you've got a testimony. You've got to share it. That very day, Paul went out. And as he goes out, he he begins to share the good news with people. And he tells them, you know, I was here to capture you, but you don't understand. I met Jesus. And as he begins to talk to them, he takes them through history. All of a sudden, it clicks. All the prophecies about Jesus now make sense. They fall into place. And he is able to explain to people in ways that they had never understood that Jesus was Christ and he was Lord. Paul found Jesus. And because of that relationship with Jesus, because Jesus was willing to use him when he was a murderer, when he was no good, when he was in the depths of the depths, when he was in complete opposition to him, it was so transformational in his life that nothing could stop him. It didn't matter who touched him. He knew who God was. And he knew what God had called him to do. And he knew that if God could take him from that place and could use him, that God could use anybody, and he had to share the word. He had to share the word that God loves everyone. And so as Paul and Silas are sitting in this jail, as they are talking, instead of doing what most of us are tempted to do, complaining and getting angry, there's this peace that passes all understanding. And they begin to talk, and they share with each other. And as they share, it is infectious throughout the entire entire prison. So much so that hardened criminals stop in their tracks when Paul and Silas tell them to. There is something different. The Bible tells us that when you encounter God, when you encounter Him, your life will change. When you see that you are not good enough, but He wants you anyways, there's nothing stopping you. In Exodus, it tells us that Moses would spend time with God. He came down off the mountain after getting the Ten Commandments. He was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights with God. And when he came down, his face shone so brightly that he had to wear a bag over his head for the rest of his life. 
He only took it off when he went back in God's presence. When we encounter God, people will notice. And Paul had encountered the saving relationship with God. And because of that, it didn't matter what came his direction. So let me ask you a question. Why did God send an earthquake? Why did God send this earthquake? I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 16, verse 35. That's page 899, Acts chapter 16, verse 35. Acts chapter 16, verse 35 says, and this is what's happening to Paul and Silas. It says, the next morning the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let these men go. So the jailer said, told Paul, the city officials have said that you and Silas are free to leave, go in peace. What often happened during this day was when there was somebody that was causing a stir or having too much influence, the city officials would take and they would beat them and they would throw them in prison and then they'd let them out of jail the next day limping and hurting and crying and complaining to go be an influence on anybody else who would try to have an influence in the city. And so it didn't really matter who Paul and Silas were. They were having too much influence. They were making a stir, so let's beat them. Stick them in jail for a night and then send them out to spread the word. If you make a commotion, you're in for the same type of thing. So, why did God send an earthquake? It's not like they were stuck in jail for the rest of their lives. It's not like they needed to be sprung free like Peter needed out when they were going to kill him and an angel was sent to walk him out through the doors. He sent an earthquake and this wasn't any ordinary earthquakes. Ordinary earthquakes knock down houses and kill people. This earthquake shakes a jail and simply releases doors and chains. He sends an earthquake because God goes out of his way to reach people's lives. He sent an earthquake because he knew the jailer, the only way he was going to have an opportunity to come into a saving relationship with him was for him to go through this experience and having had Paul and Silas in the prison to meet Jesus. And just like God goes out of his way by sending these massive earthquakes that shook this jailer to the core, in less than a few minutes, he goes from suicidal to not knowing what to do. He takes Paul and Silas back to his house, and in his house, Paul and Silas lay out the story of salvation. They tell them the story. The story goes that Jesus who is God, who sits at the right hand of God in heaven. He saw the plight of us here on earth, and he, God just couldn't stand it. And so Jesus came, and he was born to the lowest of the low. And he grew up despised by men. And then this same Jesus, he walked around, and he healed the people, and he touched people. And his full mission in life was to seek and to save the lost, to show people who God the Father was. And then this Jesus who had done nothing wrong. The religious leaders conspired against him. And he was dragged away. And as they dragged Jesus away, and they took him before the councils, they beat him and they spit on him. And he was so undeserving. And unlike other criminals, he didn't say a word. As they shoved the crown of thorns on his head, and as they spit on him, and they called him names, He simply looked at them. And then as he is taken through Jerusalem into the hill 
carrying his cross. He can't quite carry it. He's lost too much blood. He still doesn't complain, but as he falls under the weight, they give the cross to somebody else, and he has to walk behind what is going to kill him. And as Paul and Silas are sharing this with the jailer, they know what it looks like. They've seen Rome's cruelty. They know what crucifixion is. And crucifixion is evil and it's mean. And as they carry, as Jesus walks with his cross up a hill, instead of having to be wrestled down and held to the cross like every other criminal, Jesus willingly lays himself on the cross and he holds his own hands out as they put the nails through his hand. And as they hoist Jesus up, and as Paul and Silas are describing this, the jailer has a real picture. That's not how it usually goes. This man was different. That's not what it's like. And as they hoist the cross up and they drop it, instead of the obscenities pouring out of most people's mouths, there is nothing but silence. And as Jesus hangs up there, instead of thinking of himself, he takes care of his mother. And then he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And he dies. And the jailer says, well, he died? You said he was God. How could God die? That doesn't make any sense. I was convinced until now. Nobody handles like that. I thought there was going to be a miraculous saving at the end. And, and Paul and Silas were like, no, wait. We haven't gotten to the best part yet. You see, they took him down off the cross. And when they took him off the cross, they put him in a tomb. And that tomb, the priests were so worried that someone was going to steal his body. They had it so heavily guarded. And they had a seal on it. But God told us that he was going to rise again in three days. And you know, on Sunday morning... An angel came and woke Jesus up. And he spent time with his followers. And I want you to know that he's in heaven right now. And you know, you've heard about the Jewish laws, the sacrificial system that was in place, how the wages of sin is death. And there had to be blood shed. Well, I want you to know that Jesus is that death that takes the place. And as Paul and Silas are explaining this to the jailer, their lives are changed forever. The jailer and his entire family look at Paul and they say, we want this, we want to be accepted. And that very night, they commit their lives to him. What I'm here today to tell you is that just like Paul and Silas were sharing with the jailer, we need to come to the realization that we're in need of saving. They're the same Jesus they were talking about offers salvation to each one of us. The jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? What does Paul tell them? Well, first of all, you need to get rid of all the pagan idols in your house, and you need to start um, paying money to the church, and you really need to take care of some dietary things, and there's some other you know, things we need to go through. And then, then there's, we have a list. No. Turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 16, sorry. Um, Verse 30. It says, And he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. 
Paul and Silas don't give them a list. Why is that? Because there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. Absolutely nothing. Let's turn to 1 John 3.16. It's page 862. 1 John 3.16. Or John 3.16, not 1 John, sorry. John 3.16. John 3.16 says, For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This re-emphasizes it. What do we have to do to be saved? We have to believe in Jesus. Now what does belief look like? Does it mean I have to get my act together? No, not right away. God loves us so much that he takes us wherever we are. It doesn't matter how bad we are and how bad we've gotten. God takes us where we're at, but he loves us way too much to leave us there. He begins a process in our life that we'll look back on and see how we've changed and how we've become to look more like him. But the only thing we have to do to, to be saved is truly believe. And belief is an action word. It's not sitting around going life as usual. Belief means something that struck you to the core and you realize I am a sinner. My sinful nature has gotten way out of control and I can't handle it on myself. I need a savior. Turn with me to Romans um, chapter 3, page 914. Romans chapter 3, 914. Romans chapter 3 tells us, um, Romans chapter 3, um, verse 23, it says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declared that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. We have to recognize first that we're in need of a Savior. Like I said before, God desires a relationship with us, but he's never going to force us into a relationship. So we have to recognize we're in need of anything. Then turn the page over to Romans chapter 6, verse um, 23. It says, For the wages of sin is death. So all of us have sinned. We're all in need of a Savior. And what we deserve is death. But the verse finishes, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is a wage? A wage is something we earn. When you go to work, you get a wage. You get your salary. You get paid from something you did. So in other words, we earned death by sinning. We earned death. What's a gift? It's free. If, if, you know, Stephen were to say, hey, Pastor Jen, I got you this great brand new car, take it. And I'm like, Stephen, you shouldn't have done it. That's, that's so nice. I, you know, I'm, you know, thanks. Let me, let me give you a dollar. I, would it be a gift if I gave him a dollar? No, I would be paying. It's not what the car is worth unless it's a toy car. But... If you, if you give something in return, like if you, if you have to give, okay, well, Stephen, I'm not going to give you a dollar, but, you know, I'll buy you a car. You know, it, a gift is just that. There's no strings attached. 
But in order to accept the gift, like if Stephen buys me a car, and I, um, I was like, Stephen, that's so cool. Thanks for the car. I love it. But I refuse to take the keys. I never get in it. Um, it just sits in the church parking lot where he gave it to me. Have I accepted the gift? It's still out there. It's still available for me. So we have to recognize our need, that we're in need of a Savior, and we have to accept that gift. And what that means is we have to accept Jesus into our life. And we have to believe that Jesus will save us. In 1 Timothy, it tells us that Jesus came to save sinners. And Paul was writing to Timothy saying, and I'm the worst sinner there is, and he came to save me. We have to believe that that's Jesus' mission here on this earth. And then we have to, with belief, God does some convicting on our hearts. And as he's convicting on our hearts, there's things that pop up into our life. And it tells us, please turn to 1 John 1, 9, page 1000, 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9 tells us, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. God promises us that if we confess our sins, he'll forgive us. And not only will he forgive us, but he'll continue that process of cleaning us out inside. So once we realize we're desperately in need of a Savior and we accept that free gift and God begins to show us stuff, he starts cleaning us out from the inside. And where does, how often do we have to ask forgiveness of our sins? Um, are we like my sister when we were little? My sister and I, we'd get in an argument for something, and it didn't matter what the argument was about. She then went back for the last few years and listed everything I'd done wrong to her. I'd done this to her, and I'd done that to her, and I'd done this to her, and I'd done that to her. And then I'd have to apologize for each one separately before I got to the thing that I'd recently done to her in order to settle the dispute. Luckily, she's no longer like that. But is that how God treats us? Now, turn with me to Micah chapter 7. That's page 753. Micah chapter 7. I love this verse. 753. Micah chapter 7, verse 18. It says, Where is another God like you who pardons the guilt of the remnant, overlooking the sins of his special people? You will not stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing unfailing love. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Once God has forgiven us, it's done. We might have some repercussions to deal with here on this earth, but that's it in God's eyes. So how do we get salvation? All Paul told the jailer he had to do was believe. And that's really it. That's really all we have to do. We have to believe in Jesus, but a true belief prompts action. And that's exactly what the jailer did. The jailer then cleaned their wounds. He went out of his way. He asked for more. He changed his life. He went and got baptized. What I'm here to share with you today is that there's going to be some pretty major earthquakes in our lives. 
And with God, without God, we're going to be like the jailer, pulling our sword and ready to take our own life. Some scientists were doing some testing. They were trying to see how much stress humans could handle on their own. And so they took some sheep, and what they did is they had a sheep in the middle of a circular pen, and every few feet was a different feeding station, and it all had food in them. And so they put this baby lamb inside here, and they put food in all of them, and so the baby lamb wanders over to the first feeding trough, and it gets shocks. And when he started to eat, it gets shocked. And so it jumps back, and it yells out. It bleats. And shaking a little scared, it goes to the next feeding trough. And when he goes to eat there, it gets shocked again. And the lamb, you know, cries out. And he, he spends the next hour working up the energy. And he goes to a different feeding trough until he's finally gone to all of them. And he gets shocked every single time he tries to eat. And when he tries to eat... They, it, he just can't eat until he gets shocked, and it's just crazy. And so this little lamb, after hours of testing each one again and again, he sits in the middle of the pen, shaking, and dies of exhaustion. And so they decided to test it further, and they put another lamb, baby lamb, in there, The exact same scenario, but one thing was different. They put the lamb's mother in with it. And the baby lamb walks up to the first feeding trough, and he goes to eat, and he gets shocked, and he yells out, and he bleeds, and he, he, he screams, and the mother answers back. And unlike the first lamb, he doesn't move. He sticks his head back in, and he eats some more, and he gets shocked a second time, and he screams out, and... The mother calls back. And the lamb ate the entire trough, didn't move to a second one. He stayed at the same trough. The difference was his mother was there to give him the support he needed. We can't handle life stresses on our own. We'll be like the first lamb. We'll keep trying one thing and then another thing and then another thing and we'll fail until we die of exhaustion and fear. But if we take God up on the free gift of salvation he offers, we don't have to do it alone. Even though life hurts, he'll be there to take us through the pain. What I want to ask you tonight is, the dare is, do you realize that you're not good enough on your own to enter heaven? Do you realize there's nothing you can do to enter heaven on your own? Will you accept God's help? Will you accept his free gift and assurance of salvation? He's offering it to you tonight. With that relationship, he, with that acceptance, he wants a relationship with you. Do you want to be in a relationship with God? So when the earthquake happens in your life, you're not there holding a sword. You're able to sing in the prison. And I want you to know... That salvation is for every single one of us. If God can use Paul, who is a murderer and in complete opposition to him, he wants all of us in a relationship with him too. You've been listening to The Disciple Dare from Pastor Jennifer Deans. We hope this message encouraged you as you learn to follow in Jesus' footsteps. If you'd like to learn more about how you can take the dare, drop by ViennaSDA.org. 
There you'll find resources to get connected to others like yourself and to help in your spiritual journey.